Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you to a, our second in this Trust Truth series, uh, our fourth uh, our fourth season, if you will, the Fire and Ice edition that we've got going on this this season. Such a, a joy! I see a number of returning faces from last week. Great to have you back with us. If you if you were, and if this is your first time. Uh, Glad to, glad to have you here this time. We're going all through the season of Lent, so this is our, our second of five sessions. Um, and so blessed this week to have OK Indy Bay uh, with us, who has traveled up just yesterday from Connecticut. A number of you know him from his time uh, at St. Lawrence University, uh, who, where he was a visiting professor, not once, but twice during my time as pastor. My, my first, I was just thinking, my first memory um, I haven't even told you this. I think you were wearing that same hat in the, the first. You have several. They're, they're, it's a good one. When he was on campus, he was lecturing to a group of students on campus, and I was walking about as I want to do. And he, in the midst of the the lecture, gave a greeting. When the priest walks through the campus. The number of downcast eyes, <laughs> avoiding all sorts of recognition that there's even a human being under these clothes is, is incredible. But this, that it, there was this there's warmth and a, a greeting there. I'm told by his students that he's a wonderful professor and also an incredible novelist. I know him as an incredible man of faith uh, and one of the best storytellers um, that, I, that I've ever met. And... Um, also very pleased to, to call him a friend. So, okay, thank you so much for, for being with us. Um, I would like on this day that he's gonna be speaking to us of the persecution of Christians, in particular in his native land of Nigeria, um, to ask you to join me in, in prayer, uh, asking uh, God's blessing upon not only us, but upon all those uh, in need in our world today. Lord our God. You have told us that we are blessed when we are persecuted. And yet, Lord, Lord, we know it doesn't feel like it. We ask, we ask your blessing upon all those hearts that are hurting, those who feel so alone, those who are in danger of their life, and whose homes, whose loved ones, whose very faith is threatened. Bless our time together this night, that we, who in this much safer place, but who's, who are gathered here in your name, Lord, we ask you to, to bless our time together, that we might never take for granted the freedoms we enjoy, but also grow evermore into the fullness of freedom. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Folks, without any further ado, would you please give a warm welcome to OK Indy Bay. Um, good. Let's begin by saying good evening. Good evening. Uh, we're going to have to do better. Right? And before I tell you why we should do better, let me sort of speak to a cultural condition. In my culture, I'm Igbo from southeastern Nigeria. You can't, by the way, can you all hear me? No. Can, oh, no. I know. <laughs> Put on your hearing aid. All right. 
So where I come from is southeastern Nigeria. You can't address an audience before you've given a salutation. And if you don't hear back from the audience, that would be their very polite way of saying to you, take a hike. All right? So we're going to come. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to say good evening. I want to hear back from you. All right? If that's okay with you. Good evening. Good evening. Good. Lovely. There's another cultural stipulation. In my culture, a guest is expected to bring two things. One is goodwill. The second thing is fair, clement weather. <laughs> so I want to assure you that I've come with a lot of goodwill. And I think it's just me that I might, I might as well take credit for the kind of weather we've had today. So you have me to thank for it. <laughs> All right, such, such a delight. Better than a delight, it's a blessing to be invited to a community that where I have visited twice, uh, teaching at St. Lawrence University, and where I have felt particularly warmly welcomed, and where I have made so many friends, and anybody who knows anything about me will know that I am very, very greedy for friendship. I like to collect friends, and Canton has been very, very generous to me in that regard. So as I look through the room, I'm not gonna name, because I have so many friends here, that inevitably I'm gonna meet somebody and I'll spend the rest of my life paying for it. So I'm not going to name. But all of you know that you are very dear to my heart. And it's a treasure to fall in your midst again. So I've been asked to speak to a subject that is very vast. Um, but I've been given very little time to do it in. Again, anybody who knows anything about me will tell you that I'm culturally incapable of brevity. <laughs> but I hear that no. we have to end in about an hour, and some of us have not had dinner, so after this, we have to proceed to dinner. So I'm gonna try and keep within time. I've also been asked, which I think is helpful, to save time for Q&A. And I think that they kind of subject that I'm going to discuss is particularly um, appropriate for questions, you know, because there are so many, there are so many dimensions of, of this question that one could discuss. So I hope that any points that I don't uh, get to, perhaps that in taking the questions that I'll be able to attend to some dimensions of the issues that I don't uh, speak to immediately. I'd like to enter a series of caveats. So I'm here to speak about the persecution of Christians in Nigeria. But I also want to start by saying, underscoring the fact that often in Nigeria and elsewhere, Christians are not blameless in the infliction of violence on others. It's important to underscore that point. 
And it's a subject that I've also written about. Um, in 2010, for example, the BBC did a series on a pastor um, in Bayelsa State, one of the sort of oil producing states in Nigeria. And this woman came to infamy, I would suggest, by stipulating to parents that if they had children who were restless, who cried a lot, who were inconsolable, then those kids were witches and wizards. And so you had parents, some parents actually killed their own children because they were convinced based on this pastor's pathological doctrine that their kids were witches and wizards. I wrote about it and wrote critically of the state governor at the time, who is now the Senate president in Nigeria, Gotwil Ababio, whose response was to accuse the nonprofit in the UK and their affiliate within Nigeria that uh, beamed a searchlight on this horror to accuse them of grifting for money. So instead of having the pastor, Helena Abio, arrested, the governor mounted a defense of this crazy woman and said that there was no such thing happening and that these, uh, the, the people who had highlighted this horror uh, were doing it for money. The other thing that I'd like to uh, underscore is the fact that most Muslims in Nigeria and elsewhere, I would say most of them, are good, peace-loving people. And there's no better illustration for this than the story of my father. My father was a postal clerk uh, in Yola, in the northeastern part of Nigeria where I was born. And in the prelude to what became the Nigerian Civil War, there was a genocide, really, of ethnic Igbo who happened to be predominantly Christian in the northeastern part of Nigeria. So my father sent us, four of us, their children, home to his natal area of the, of the country, uh, the southeastern part of Nigeria. So my father sent us home. He could not live with us because he was a federal civil servant and the federal government had stipulated that if you left your post, you were going to be fired. So my father stayed back. So one day, a mob arrived uh, at the post office. So my father, who was the postmaster, barricaded himself and other postal clerks within the post office. The mob proceeded to try to knock down the barricade and to kill my father. At the very nick of time, the traditional ruler of the town, who happened to be a Muslim, was passing the post office in his convoy and he saw this mob and he stopped and said to them, what's going on? And they told him that there were some Christians that they were trying to get to, to kill. And this man sent the mob away and then he rescued my father and his co-workers 
and gave them sanctuary in his palace for three weeks until things calmed down and he brought them personally to the banks of, it, of the river Benue where they joined the last vessel to leave the northeastern part of the country before Nigeria exploded into what turned out to be a 30-month civil war in which about 3 million people perished. Most of them children and women, and most of them to starvation. Many years later, I've written a piece about my father and his narrow escape from the clutches of death. And a woman called me and informed me that that traditional ruler, almost 40 years later, was still alive. So I arranged to go meet him. And in my conversation with him, I said, you are a Muslim. Indeed, the Islamic leader of your community. Why did you feel it was important to spare the lives of my father and other Christians? And the man said to me that it was his duty as a true Muslim to ensure that innocent blood was not spilled. It was a very fortuitous gathering meeting with a man because a year and a half later, he was 89 at the time I met him. A year and a half later, he died. But for me, this was an honorable man. So it's important to underscore that because it's easy to paint everybody with the same brush. Now, having said so, there is indeed a plague there is indeed a terrifying phenomenon of religious violence. Now, again, I need to provide another caveat as a way of providing a context. A lot of this religious violence is driven not necessarily by religious sentiment, not necessarily by rabid religious impulse, but by harsh economic conditions that are then exploited often by rogue politicians. Let me give you a sketch of why, how this is so. I happened to be in Nigeria last March, almost a year ago. When I got there, everybody was complaining that a bag of rice was 10,000 Naira. Now, to put it in context, the minimum wage in Nigeria is 30,000 30, Naira a month. So you had to use, in March of last year, a third of your salary just to buy a bag of rice. So you don't account for clothing for yourself and your family, for rent, for meat, for fish, for water for electricity, for anything else. A bag of rice, 10,000 Naira. I returned to Nigeria in October. That bag of rice, which was 10,000, had risen to 50,000 Naira. So if you were minimum wage, you needed to put together almost two months salary in order to buy one bag of rice. And I thought it couldn't get worse. Then I went back to Nigeria this January. By January, the bag of rice had risen to 70,000 Naira. 
the minimum wage remains 30,000 naira a month. And most states pay 20,000, which used to be the minimum wage before it was uh, raised to 30,000. So you have people who now have to pay several months salary just to buy a bag of rice. And that's all your money can get. And so when we talk about, and yet Nigeria is the world's sixth or seventh oil producing, largest oil producing country. So it's a country that has tremendous wealth, but it's a country that has been particularly unfortunate in its leadership. So it's a country where, as I say, it was conceived in hope, this country, but nurtured into hopelessness by its political leadership and broadly by its elite. So you've, I don't know if you followed the news, but two days before um, the Super Bowl, there was a Nigerian banker who died in California, the border between California and Nevada. So he flew to the United States in his private jet, $60 million private jet, um, wanted to land in, the, in Las Vegas, but the airport was packed full because so many millionaires were flying in to watch the Super Bowl. So he flew to LA airport and packed his a, a, a private jet there and rented a helicopter to take him to Las Vegas. Apparently the weather was terrible. But sometimes when you have too much money, you make terrible decisions. That helicopter went down, took his life, the life of his wife, and the life of their son. But this isn't a country again, as I said, where the minimum wage is 30,000 Naira. And to give you a scale, really, because you say, what does 30,000 Naira mean? So again, in March of last year, $1 could fetch you 650 Naira. As of today, the value of the Naira has fallen so precipitously that $1 fetches you 1,850 Naira. So you have a country where, as of last March, there were 70%, there was 70% of Nigerians who lived on a dollar per day. So today is about that amount of people living on perhaps 40 cents a day. So when you have this kind of economic and social condition, then you have the ripe conditions for the exploitation of religious extremism. And in the northern part of Nigeria, so the other thing is that, of course, Nigeria, again, to get to a few bi biographical details about the country. So Nigeria was put together by the British, by colonialist fiat. So Nigerians were not consulted. Uh, the 250 different languages and cultures within the space that we call Nigeria, none of them were consulted as to whether they wanted to belong to this behemoth that the British put together. Okay? And so, all the ethnic 
and ultimately religious suspicions, tensions, were never addressed. There was never a sense of national spirit, a set of aspirations, of ideals to which the Nigerian nation felt itself drawn to. So Nigeria is a work in progress. And sometimes that progress is very messy. And by the way, part of what I'm describing of religious persecution of Christians is an Africa-wide phenomenon. Just two days ago, if you're following the news, in Burkina Faso, at a Catholic mass, there was a bombing in which 15 worshippers died. There was, in 2022, in Nigeria, in June, during uh, the Feast of the Pentecost, there was an attack at a Catholic church in Owo, Ondo State, one of Nigeria's 36 states, and uh, four marked men came in with hand grenades and guns. And by the time they were finished, at least 40 worshippers were dead. Some suggest that the toll, death toll, was as high as 80, but at least 40 is confirmed. The Nigerian government blamed the group called Boko Haram, which a faction of it rechristened itself the Islamic State of West Africa province, Iswap, aligned with ISIS or ISIL as it is called sometimes. But at any rate, as we speak, nobody has been arrested for that. So that is sadly, tragically, the trend. Again, if you follow an event in Nigeria, you know that on May 12, 2022, a young woman, Deborah Yakubu, was beaten by a mob and set on fire. And her assailants made sure that they videotaped this ghastly, dastardly act. Now, what was her offense? She was a student at the College of Education, the Shehu Shagari College of Education. And she and her classmates had a WhatsApp group. Most of her classmates were Muslims. So they were using the WhatsApp group, which was meant to discuss academic ideas to propagate their Islamic faith. So this woman merely wrote that she thought that people should refrain from talking about religious matters, that they should use the WhatsApp group exclusively for the discussion of academics. For this offense, she was threatened with death. She was accused of blasphemy, of insulting the Prophet Muhammad. And so the school authorities, recognizing that her life was in danger, put her in a room and called the police to come and take her into protective custody. While she was in that room, a mob arrived and prized her out of the room 
brought her to a public place and began to pelt her with cudgels and with stones. As they were doing this, the police arrived and used tear gas, but they were not deterred. More of them came. Once they knocked her down, they then poured gasoline and set her on fire. And they recorded all of this. They were not hiding it. The end of it, the police arrested the two assailants who then put the video on social media. So you can, if you have a macabre sense of entertainment, the video is available. The police arrested her assailants and charged them to court. But instead of charging them to court for a capital crime, the police charged them, sort of watered down the crimes so that if they were convicted, they would have spent no more than two years in jail. But that was not even the worst of it. A police officer then recorded a video where he praised the young man who had killed this young woman. And he said they performed their duty as Muslims. Now, these young men were arraigned in court on watered-down charges, and every day the court set like four sessions. At no session did any prosecutor show up to prosecute the case. At no session. The prosecutors just went missing. Meanwhile, a professor of law, an Islamic professor of law, mobilized 34 other senior attorneys to defend their assailants. So they stormed the court in a big way. The prosecutors were no show. So after four appearances, the judge announced that he had no choice but to dismiss the case. Meanwhile, eight days after this young woman was killed, another woman, Rhoda Jatau, published a video where she condemned the killing of this innocent woman. For that offense, the, an Islamic prosecutor in her home state arrested that woman. She spent 20 months in jail, being tried for what? Blasphemy. So the young men who killed somebody who videotaped it have gone free, defended by 34, 35 attorneys. But a young woman for merely daring to condemn their act of savagery has had her life upended. In 2014, August 14, 2014, Nigeria was convulsed by news that Islamic militants had stormed a school, an all-girls school, and had abducted close to 300 girls in Chibok, in Maiduguri. So, the Chibok girls. It made it into the news, partly because I had something to do with it. Um, this abduction happened 
and for a few days there was very little response if any from the Nigerian government there were conflicting reports about how many of them were abducted some authorities said a hundred some said 300 some said 150 nobody knew so I wrote a piece for the Guardian of London where I said that our girls have been abducted why were we as a nation sleeping easy it was after the publication of my article that the news became global and Michelle Obama and a bunch of not, uh, Hollywood actors and actresses then began to wear the tag, bring back our girls. So it became a global phenomenon. As we speak, up to 90, perhaps more than 90, of those women who were abducted in 2014 remain missing. They remain in captivity. On numerous occasions, Boko Haram has announced that they had enslaved the women because they were Christians, they were infidels, have announced that it was proper to use them as sex slaves. And so one of the young women, Leah uh, Taribu, refused to convert. She was told to convert to announce that she was renouncing Christianity and embraces Islam. And she refused to do so. So she's been held punitively and she's had her third child in captivity. This was a woman who was sent to a high school by her parents. The Nigerian state looked the other way as Boko Haram committed this act of horror. And by the way, it's important to sort of look at the formation of Boko Haram itself. So Boko Haram, Boko, B-O-K-O, is a corruption of book, books. Haram means forbidden. So this is an organization that was founded in 2002 by an Islamic cleric called Muhammad Yusuf. Now, Muhammad Yusuf was used by politicians in his home state who wanted him to mobilize all these unemployed young men to act as thugs to enable the politicians to win an election. So that was done. But as soon as the politicians got into office, these young men were ignored, neglected. And so, Mohammed Yusuf then organized these young men into a militant force. And his argument to them was that the corruption of these politicians who had ignored their interests once they got into office, owed to the fact that Western values, Western education itself, was antithetical to a good society. 
So the argument was that corruption in Nigeria was tied to Western values. So Boko Haram then said that their commission and their commitment was to ensure the end of Western education as we know it throughout every layer of the Nigerian society. Instead of which they wanted to institute Islamic education and Islamic values. And so they began to attack even other Muslims who were not as extreme as they were. So their first bombing attacks were actually at mosques where they killed fellow Muslims. And then increasingly, they began to attack Christians as well. It's interesting that there was an altercation between the police, law enforcement, some elements in the military, and members of Boko Haram in 2009. So between 2002 and 2009, Boko Haram was a quasi, you know, they were militant in their rhetoric, but not necessarily militant in their actions. But in 2009, they had a brush with law enforcement. Law enforcement agents then called in the military and this man, the founder of Boko Haram, Mohammed Yusuf, was arrested by the military and handed over to the police, handcuffed. The next day, the police showed his bullet-riddled body and claimed that he was killed in a gun battle with the police. So this was an occasion where the Nigerian state, by its act of lawlessness, by its fraud, by its pathological violence, then unleashed this demonic force in Boko Haram as well. So Boko Haram then had a new leader, Abubakar Shekau, who turned even more militant than the founder of the group. And it was that group under that new incarnation of militancy that went in and took 270-something young women who were in their school sitting exams. And a lot of those young women, as I said, are unaccounted for as we speak today. So Nigeria is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious society. So I say 250 different languages, different cultures. And when I say 250 languages, some Americans say, wow, you have 250 dialects. No, I mean languages. That gives you a sense of the diversity in that country that the British put together through fiat. Okay? The Nigerian constitution formally states that everybody has the right to the practice of religion. That's formal in the Nigerian constitution. But it's one of those precepts that the Nigerian state has hardly lived up to. In fact, the Nigerian state has observed that precept in its absolute 
and continual breach and violation. So, not in the history of Nigeria, there is not one Muslim who has been tried for doing harm, including up to death, to a Christian. Not one. So that what, what, what happened in the case of those who killed Deborah Yakubo is clearly a pattern, is representative. That once you kill a Christian, he's considered an infidel, and the state does not bother you. When a case is filed, is a kind of routine, and everybody knows how ultimately that is going to end. It's not going to end in prosecution, and it's not going to end in any punishment. So in 1994, I was a poor trader. Godian Akalako. His wife was accused of using a page of the Quran to wrap something for her child. It turns out later that this was not his wife at all. This was a case of mistaken identity. This poor man was returning to his shop when he was seized by some militants beaten to a pulp, then he was, I'm sorry, because I see kids here. I see children, I see children. So, let's be headed. And his head carried on a spike all over the city, all over the city. Another poor trader, a woman who was 74 years old, again was killed because she objected to a Muslim who wanted to do ablutions to cleanse himself with water in front of her stall before he went to pray. So she said, don't do it here. That was a capital offense for which she paid with her life. In none of these cases, has anybody ever been tried? And so last Christmas, in Nigeria's, what's called the mid, um, middle belt of Nigeria, in Plateau State, a community awoke to attacks by Muslim herdsmen who killed 140 members of a community, set their homes on fire, and sent everybody packing. And they occupied the community where they had committed this atrocity. As we speak, nobody, that's still there, nobody has paid for it. Instead of which, by the government's failure to act, just in January, late January, they returned and killed another 40. Okay. So you have a case, and it's important to underscore the violence that is um, connected 
to hurt men. So Muslim herdsmen take their cattle from the northern part of the country and they trek all the way through the breadth of the country. And as they go with their cattle, they sell their cattle. Now the northern part of the country is um, beset by desertification. So the desert, the Sahara Desert is spreading increasingly. So the cattle do not have grazing, grounds for grazing. And so increasingly, the pressure is that they are moving toward the south, and as they come to communities that are weak, they commit their acts of horror, and they take over those communities, and they start rearing their cattle there. They are able to get away with it because the Nigerian state has never held anybody to account. So I could go on and on, but I want to sort of pause by telling the story of what happened in Kenya. I'm sure that some of you remember in 2013, September 21, Al-Shabaab, again an Islamist group that has its roots in Somalia, attacked the Westgate malls in Nairobi, Kenya. 68 people were killed as they shot in a mall. And that attack is particularly personal for me because I happened to be in New York at the Brooklyn Book Festival. My second novel was coming out in a few months. So my publishers had brought me to New York to give a talk at this Brooklyn Book Festival. So my wife and I had gone to Mass. And as we stepped out of Mass, I turned on my phone and here was a message from a friend of mine, and he said, your friend was also killed in Kenya. That friend was one of the most generous and talented writers from Africa, Kofi Awono, who was once the ambassador of Ghana to the United Nations. When I was invited to this country by the great novelist Chinua Achebe to set up an, uh, an international magazine focused on Africa called African Commentary. I first met Kofi Awona and convinced him to be one of our writers. He became a dear friend and a great mentor. And even though he'd returned to, to Ghana, he and I kept in touch. And I'll go to Ghana for conferences at his invitation. And on one occasion, I brought him to Nigeria for a festival, literary festival. He had gone to Ghana with his son to speak at a major literary festival in Kenya. And he took his son to the mall to eat at a restaurant. He was 78 and his sight was poor. His health was not very strong. And so when Al-Shabaab shooters arrived and began to spread their bullets. He couldn't run. His son was able to escape. They riddled his body with bullets. They snuffed out the life of one of the continent's most gifted novelists and poets. So the cost to Africa of religious persecution of carnage 
is incalculable. And so it requires clear action by every person of conscience, but particularly clear, clear action by governments to make sure that those who feel tempted to commit acts of horror, to kill in the name of God, are held to account. Because ultimately this will be the only way that the scourge is stopped. I'm going to pause. Thank you very much. So I understand uh, many have questions, uh, some follow-up, and uh, what I, I propose, though, is for us to take just a moment, um, and if it's okay with okay, um, if some, uh, if Corey's still around, is Corey still around? I'm hoping so. Um, somebody needs to stretch off uh, or maybe get a beverage. Take five minutes, and we're going to come back for a Q&A, okay? Thank you. So, actually during the break, somebody came to talk to me and made a very important point that ultimately uh, it, it may not fall if we leave it up to governments to stop this craziness that the governments may not have the will, may not have, which indeed they don't. Because one of the things that happened was that after the bar, Deborah uh, Yakubu was, was killed in this horrific manner, um, a major Muslim leader who used to be Nigeria's vice president, Atiku Abubakar, he was actually running to become the president in an election that was held February 25 of last year. As soon as the horror happened, he took to Twitter and he condemned it. And then Muslims descended on him and called him a traitor. And he went and deleted his tweet and said, oh, people should have respect for other people's religions. So he quickly you know, changed his message from what it should have been to speak with moral clarity. And he went to this waffling statement about respect for religious liberties. So the point that an interlocutor made to me is that ultimately it falls to good Muslims, the kind of Muslim that I spoke about earlier, the Lamida of Adamawa who saved my father, that it falls to Muslims like that in greater number to rise up and say, not in our name. We don't kill humans in our name. And ultimately, just the fact this whole idea that some people have the arrogance to feel that you have blasphemed and that they have to kill you for their God. It, it's, it's nonsensical. But as I said, a lot of these young men, mostly young men, who are carrying out these acts of horror are clearly uneducated. They've been rejected. They, they're the rejects of society. They are the margins of society. They are dogged by um, poverty that is inconceivable. Okay? And part of their fantasy, why they commit these acts, risking death to themselves, because Boko Haram 
then became an armed force, and occasionally the Nigerian military would encounter them in, in, in battle. And part of what Boko Haram uses to recruit these young men is to tell them that if you die in one of these religious wars, once you get to paradise, you'll be rewarded with 72 virgins. So these are, you can see the kind of desperation, the kind of bereft existence that you have, that you are wishing that you're gonna kill people and then be rewarded with virgins in, in, in paradise, you know. Um, so there's a lot of work of education, of enlightenment that needs to happen across the board, even amongst Christians. Because when a, a pastor begins to proclaim that children who are in the oil-producing hub of Nigeria, which paradoxically produces both Nigeria's wealth, but, but it's steeped in the worst kind of ecological deg degradation, and therefore kids you know, uh, breathing the fumes from gas that is flaring and so on. And so these kids are sick, and so they cry a lot. They are hungry, and they cry. And this pastor steps in and says, they are crying, and they can't be consoled because they are witches and wizards. And parents, they will kill their own children, believing them to be witches and wizards. So there is a work of enlightenment and of education across the board but particularly that you need religious leaders, especially Muslim religious leaders, to stand up and say, we reject this horror of killing in our name, in the name of Allah. Yeah. Did you want to jump in? I thought I, thought I saw your, I saw your hand move. You're doing great. Okay. <laughs> now, can you just say about, I'll try to speak loudly though, can you just say about um, how many Muslims there are in Nigeria and how much what you're describing is sporadic or okay. how much there's a risk mm -hmm. of, if this movement really wants to take control of the state and mm -hmm. have a Muslim state, mm -hmm. Islamic okay. law, how yes. possible is that? So that's that's a very important question. So Niger Niger Nigeria is... Um, roughly um, half and half the southern rim of the country is predominantly Muslim. The northern part of the country is predominantly, I mean, the southern is predominantly Christian, the northern is predominantly Muslim. And there was, uh, you know, a, 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 an Islamic warrior, Usman Damfodio, who led uh, a jihad between 1804 to 1808 and conquered most of the north and converted the animist populations to Islam, right? So Islam is in the northern part of the country. So when people talk about the um, sort of the distribution along religious lines, they, they, they sort of speak about Muslims and Christians having sort of roughly the same kind of population. But what happens is that we don't account for those who are animist, who are neither Christians nor Muslims, but who worship a variety of gods or who are atheists and so on. And you know, they, they, um, the case for religious um, um, uh, respect for religious freedom should extend to everybody. Everybody should have the freedom to worship or not to worship. You know, 
Um, there should be no compulsion about that. So, so Boko Haram, for example, so there are two prongs to that. So on the one hand, you have the herdsmen who have a vested interest in looking for grazing for their cattle. So they are mounting this level of assault, you know, taking over communities by committing, you know, destruction, raping women and so on and so forth and settling there with the Nigerian government doing nothing to dislodge them, right? And then you have Boko Haram, whose idea is, okay, um, Western education should just be abolished, you know, because the West has brought corruption, it has brought devaluation of values and so on and so forth. Then you have the everyday Muslim who is looking opportunistically for a Deborah Yakubu to write a text message on their WhatsApp group and say, hey, enough already. We're here to talk academics. Don't bring a line to it. And they say, blasphemy. We've got to kill for, you know, for our God. You know, so Boko Haram is organized. There was actually a moment when they took uh, most of this northeastern uh, uh, part of the country across several states. They had taken communities over and they instituted what they called a caliphate, you know, with Islamic law where if, if you stole, your hands were amputated, you know, were decapitated and so on. And that people were stoned for acts of adultery and so on and so forth. Um, so that's the case where occasionally the Nigerian state fights back with his soldiers, right? But when there are acts of horror against Christians as such, or against individuals, the Nigerian state just looks the other way. Partly because there's a certain incendiary quality to, uh, to, 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 to adherence of Islam, right? So if the young men who videotape themselves incinerating Deborah Yakubu were tried by the judge, that high court could be set on fire. And that the, 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 the judge, his life could be uh, in jeopardy and so on, and prosecutors, you know. So everybody says, okay, I don't want trouble for myself, I don't want my family attacked, and so people look the other way, and this acts them perpetuate themselves. Yeah. Yes, please. Could you maybe speak about um, or assess the current state of the United States and um, tie that together with religious persecution? So obviously Christians can be persecuted by not only Muslims, but not only different religions, but the government itself. And then tie that into, um, it seems to me that you said um, poverty, economic poverty is a huge factor where trouble comes in. Um, and I would also say dangerous ideas. So um, again, it doesn't have to be a religious idea that's antithetical to Christianity. It could be a social idea or it could be a political idea. Could you just maybe offer your own assessment about Christianity in the United States today? Yeah, that's a very, uh, a very, very important question. Of course, we do know that in this country, there are people who commit crimes, again, in the name of Christianity, all right? But increasingly, acts of religious con uh, conscience 
have been criminalized by the government, by governments in this country. And that's actually very, very frightening. A few days ago, there is a uh, commentator on MSNBC who was declaring that any Christian who believes that our rights come not from governments, but from God, is an ultra uh, white Christian nationalist. So that level of uh, profound, profoundly shocking um, uh, take, even on the foundational doctrine of this country, where the Constitution declares, the framers of the Constitution, that we believe this truth to be self-evident, that all uh, that we're all people are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among this life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when our rights derive, are deemed to derive from governments, then governments own the right to withdraw our rights as well. So it's a beautiful document. It's a uniquely American vision that we are not... Um, we do not depend on the government for the extension of rights to us, that these rights are integral to us. And, and so the fact that the government occasionally would encourage that vision, which we see happening more and more, not only in this country, but also in Europe, can be extremely, extremely dangerous. Yeah. In this country? No. In, the, Nigeria. in Nigeria. Oh. No, clearly things are worse today in Nigeria in every sector, economically, socially, because um, the depth of corruption in Nigeria, okay, uh, just the resources of the country that have been stolen by the country's political leadership is unconscionable, okay? And so a country that ought to, has no business being mediocre. You know, the Nigerian writer, the great novelist, Chinua said that Nigeria is a country that somehow manages to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, so we have no reason uh, to mock around in mediocrity but we have leaders who count their achievements in the currency of how much they're able to loot. And so there's this depraved quality to that kind of looting. And so as the country becomes poorer and poorer, the desperation of politicians seems to actually increase in its quotients. And so the desperation, the general misery the misery index is off the charts. And so, for example, I was talking about the price of rice. Part of what's happening is that Nigeria is now facing a creeping uh, phenomenon 
of food riots. They haven't quite exploded, but they are coming. So there are women who, you know, sort of sell food by the roadside. Sometimes a mob will descend on the woman and steal the food you've come out to sell and just escape because people don't have the resources to buy the food, you know. People are still earning the same finite number of Naira and suddenly just consider that a bag of rice you could get for 10,000 last March, which was already too much for many, many people, is now 70,000 a bag. And your salary for the month remains 30,000 and most days still pay only 20,000 Naira a month minimum wage. So the country, things are bleak and it's never been as bad as, as, as it is today. Yeah. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you Thank for you inviting us. me. Thank you. Pleasure. Yes, Father. Okay, you tell us that you keep going back. Mm -hmm. And it sounds it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that? First of all, what, what draws you back? Yeah. How does it feel? And how much am I supposed to be praying for you every time you go? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if you Google my name and you say arrested or detained, <laughs> right? You know that the Nigerian government, um, um, so in 2000 and, uh, so I wrote a weekly column for uh, several Nigerian newspapers for 18 years, okay? And in the course of writing that column, because of my unsparing take, criticism of corruption, official corruption in the country, the Nigerian government sent them. <laughs> <laughs> So, now, because of my unsparing take on corruption in the country, um, a guy, uh, um, Shehu, um, um, Umaru Yaradua, was elected, with elected, put it in quotation marks, because he was selected. He was rigged in as president in 2008. So, I announced in my column that, um, and by the way, he was rigged in by the then president uh, uh, um, of Basanjo, Lushigun of Basanjo, uh, self-selected him as a candidate of, his, of the ruling party, rigged the elections for him, and he himself made a statement admitting that the election was rigged. But his claim was that had it been free and fair and credible, that he would still have won. So I wrote a column that that annoys the heck out of me even more, because if you knew that you would win, then you must respect Nigerians by insisting on a credible process. And so I announced in my column that I'll never call him president. So I called him resident of Asurok. Asurok is the equivalent of the White House. Uh, I called him Yusufa in my columns. And so he was coming to the UN, to New York, to address the United Nations. And his press secretary wrote to me and proposed, said to me that the president was a fan of my column and wanted to meet me in New York. <laughs> so I wrote back and I said I had no desire to meet him. Um, and they flattered me. He said, the president considers you a critical stakeholder. That's the phrase he used. And, um, and so on. So I told him that there is nothing called critical stakeholder. 
that every Nigerian has an equal stake in their country. No, none of us holds a critical stake. And I said, at any rate, that I didn't consider him my president, that since he had admitted that the election that produced him was not proper, that he should renounce his office and present himself out of respect to the Nigerian people in a free and fair election. Well, for my troubles, the man put my name on a list of enemies of the state. So in 2008, I had gone to Nigeria twice. That was one occasion where, when I interviewed the, this man who saved my father's life. So a newspaper invited me to come back in December and hold trainings for their editorial trainings for their staff. And I had bought my ticket. They were going to refund me once I got there. But I got tipped off that the government had put me on a list of, the, of enemies of the state and that I'll be arrested. So I stayed away. I actually wanted to go because I spoke to some fellow writers and they said, you should come. You're not a criminal. You should not run. But some of my friends were scared because there is a history of political assassination in Nigeria. So two days before I left, a friend of mine who didn't want me to go called and said, have you canceled your trip? I said, no, I'm going. So he said, have you told your wife? I said, no. He said, okay, tell your wife I'm going to tell her. So, so I discussed it with my wife and she was open. She trusted my judgment. She said, if you want to go, go. But our kids, three kids were younger. So she said, but I think they will be traumatized if you are detained and locked up in Nigeria. So I canceled the trip on the eve of my departure and lost my flight ticket and so which I had booked. And then in 2010 May, this man died in office and his vice president took over, good luck Jonathan. And he came to DC to visit uh, uh, the president in the United States. And two of his officials called me and said, oh, you know, he's a big fan of yours. He'll like to meet you in DC. <laughs> so I said to them, no, 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 no. I said, he's part of a government that declared me an enemy of the state. So they called him and told him, and he said they should call me back and tell me that he's just ordered that that list be expunged. So convinced, I should have known better, but convinced that he'd done what he said. In January of 2011, I went to Nigeria because as soon as I presented my passport, I was arrested and um, they seized my American and uh, Nigerian passports. I'm a dual citizen and um, held me at the airport for three and a half hours and then released me and asked me to report at the office on Monday, this was a Saturday night, to be transported to Abuja, the country's capital. So I came out and did some interviews, and so it became global news that the government had arrested me, and the government was rattled. And so he gave instructions to the president that my passport be returned. So when I went to the security agency's offices on Monday, I went with an attorney, but they said to the attorney, oh, please, we just want to return his passport. And uh, they blamed the guy who had died. They said, he's the one who put his name. I said, but the current guy said the name had been, you know, been expunged. Anyway, so my name remains on that list all these years later. So every time when I go to Nigeria, I'm detained a little bit at the airport, but sometimes I'm processed in by an officer who had encountered me before, in which case they know that, so there are, Instruction is that they should always tell headquarters that I've come in 
I'm one headquarters when I'm leaving. So sometimes I'm kept for an hour, 30 minutes until an officer in Abuja says, oh, let him go, right? On one occasion, they kept me at the airport overnight for 10 and a half hours. Um, so the thing is, whenever you hear I'm in Nigeria, pray a lot. <laughs> I actually, um, you know, I mean, and you know my story. I, I left the church for 15 years and I came back, you know. So this is, my faith is, means everything to me. So wherever I go, I carry my rosary. And so when I wake up in Nigeria, I pray the rosary, and I feel guarded by a million soldiers, really. So the only fear I have is before I leave this country. Once I get to Nigeria, even at the airport, some of the security officials who have seen me over the years, they come and say, we admire what you do, right? Uh, they said the same thing to my wife. They see her last time, they say, are you related to okay? And they say, tell your husband, we love him, right? So I feel love, okay? But I also know that governments can be dangerous. So I went, was just there in January, and a friend of mine who is a journalist who himself had been locked up sent me a text message and I said, okay, watch your back. There's a new government, and I've been very critical of this new government in my podcast. So I said, watch your back. But I don't do any particular thing to, I don't hide, I walk around. I'm part of it, I went once to a university in Nigeria to give a talk, along with other writers. So I wanted to use the bathroom at one point, and a bunch of students came out with me, and, and they said to me, you know, we thought you would be scared to come in, given how you know, strong your columns are, that you would be afraid to come in. And I don't know sort of what put that thought into my head, but I said to the students that fear is a choice, and I've chosen not to fear. And in a sense, that's why I go. That's why I go. I have siblings who are there. And um, there was actually a moment where one of the politicians that I was criticizing uh, was telling his associates that the reason I, I criticize him fearlessly is that the American government protects me. And I said, if they have this idea, if I stop going to Nigeria, and they feel, okay, I'm shielded by America, then they could hit one of my siblings. So I actually go, in a sense, to say, if you want somebody to hit, I'm the one speaking. You're not to attack one of my siblings. And again, I'm very fortunate in my siblings because we had good moral formation from our parents. So on one occasion, this particular politician, somebody called me and said, hey, this man, he's got your attention because he started responding to me, to my columns. So people said to me, he could be dangerous. So I wasn't afraid, but I didn't want to risk the life of my siblings. So I spoke to my two brothers. I said to them, this is the concern that people have. And individually, they said to me, please continue to speak. We support you. So I have to go as a way of saying that you know, we can't fall into silence. You know, in my first novel, the a grandmother who represents moral insight in the novel tells her grandson, who happens to be a journalist, a story that must be told never forgives silence. And it's, an, it's, it's, it's something that I live by. I feel like I have to speak, and I have to speak fearlessly. And if I fall silent, in a sense, I believe that 
I will injure myself in that silence. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see the other questions for afterwards because I know some folks who have to go out. One more round of applause. Thank you so much for coming. Folks, um, happily, I don't think OK has to run off if there's any other um, private questions. But uh, just a word of plug for next week. Father Ligon Carlin uh, will be with us talking about this incredibly, uh, another incredibly um, powerful and important topic for, for, um, for our world, uh, for our society. Uh, thank you for, for being with us. Thanks for uh, that open mind. Um, and thank you for following that example. Be not afraid uh, and, and share the truth. Trust truth. Amen. Thank you. God bless you all. Thank you.